Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 33. Our discussion with Sven Frank and Ian Rowe about some of the most important findings from the Diesel Congress 2023, plus a vault episode addressing a similar topic after last year's ILC, or International Liver Congress, the one now known as the Diesel Congress. I start by mentioning a population study from South Korea looking to identify patients with steatotic liver disease, but not cirrhosis, that will progress to HCC over a 10-year period. That turned out to be roughly two-tenths of a percent of the population in this study. The researchers created an 11-point scale based on six simple variables, age, gender, diabetes, obesity, ALT, and GGT, in a 4,000-some patient cohort. This was fairly effective at identifying that small percentage of patients who progressed, and they then validated the model in a second population in both cases, the ORACs were acceptably high, and both positive and negative prediction were pretty good. Ian Rowe and Jorn Schottenberg share concern, common concern, that the small identified patient group is an issue here. But Jorn expresses the hope that expanding the patient population to the new MTSLV group, patients with both metabolic and alcoholic components, will allow us to study these kinds of issues more broadly in a population that may be better on target for it. Finally, in this conversation, Jorn shares a basic science paper looking at the country of collagen degradation by macrophages to liver fibrosis resolution. This leads to a conversation about how little we know about how fibrosis resolves beyond the idea that there are clear differences between the progression and regression processes. Our entire key opinion leader and advocate team has been struck forcibly by how many studies provided significant advances in knowledge and how some of these advances might change our underlying understandings of drugs, diagnostics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, basic science, and clinical pathways in patient treatment. It's been quite a lot to digest and very exciting to consider. So sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. And again, join us next week. One of the things that we talked about last week that I think was really interesting, Stephen raised the idea that he believes that FGF21s will be proven to be efficacious agents in compensated cirrhosis. And then the question becomes, if that's the case, we'll start screening for compensated cirrhosis if there's if there were good screen available. But the question I raised at that point was, well, we're challenged by the idea that 20 to 30 percent of all HCC patients develop HCC in the absence of cirrhosis. And how do we find them? So with that in mind, I actually went poking back through the abstract booklet this past week and found an abstract from a group in Korea who set out to answer that exact question. The title of the poster was Risk Prediction Model for Hepatocellular Carcinoma for Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease Patients Without Cirrhosis. It was Korean, and they took a nationwide cohort of 410,000 cases. Yeah, obviously, they created an 11-point system, and they did a variety of different things to build a scale and then created a validation cohort of about 8,700, slightly over 8,700 from uh, a different medical center in Korea. What they found was the 10-year cumulative HCC incidence rates in these populations were 0.21% and 0.2%. In the derivation of the external validation cohorts, not high, but given the proportion of the population that's likely to develop HCC in the absence of cirrhosis, not surprising. And the interesting thing is that in the ORACs in the model were 0.72 at five years and 0.75 at 10 years. In the validation cohort using the same model, which was an 11-point scale, uh, the C index of the model was 0.82 and the ORACs were 0.79 at five years and 0.84 at 10 years. They described calibration as satisfactory. It's only a poster, so you don't get to ask a lot of questions. And although they had an 11-point scale, they had a group called moderate risk at seven, at seven and above on the scale. What's 
that's suggestive of as a starting point is that we might be able to get to somewhere worth being. And that becomes, I think, helpful because if you ask yourself, where are we going to have the greatest impact fastest? If you get drugs for compensated cirrhosis, we're going to work a lot harder at screening people. And then we're going to ask ourselves, are we missing HCC patients? Because HCC ultimately, as Jeff McIntyre says, in the end, we're all treating liver cancer. And I think it's not quite that simple, which is what my other poster will talk about. But in treating liver cancer, we need to start to think about how would we deal with patients who are non-serotic as well. So I thought this was a promising start. Poster number is THU417, I think. And, and I just thought it was a kind of contribution to the general concept. Ian Rowe. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's an interesting poster, Roger. We're in the process of applying for research funding to do a similar thing, to try and identify risk factors and develop a score to find patients with non-serotic NAFL2 are at risk of developing ACC to quantify that and to consider how that how that information might be used. I guess the difficulty in this more general population, and there's a lot of work done in the Korean population where they have lots and lots of data and quite a bit of imaging, is that the population denominator is huge. And so even if your test was really good, if specificity was 0.95, you'd still be left with a very large number of patients who were still at relatively low risk. And so I'm not convinced that the payoff in this non-serotic population where the incidence of HCC is still going to be relatively low, that that's really the best population to go for. I, I guess that the event rate in patients who've got advanced fibrosis through decompensation and HCC will still be considerably in excess of that. I guess what I didn't mention and should have, and I don't know why I walked over this, but I did, is that the, the risk factors they were using were age, sex, diabetes, obesity, ALT, and GGT. So easy enough to find. That doesn't do away with your challenge, but it does say it should be an easy thing to compute. Jörn Schattenberg. I share Ian's concerns about the low incidence in the non-serotic population. But revisiting the nomenclature debate, and if we add patients that socially consume alcohol regularly, we might even increase that risk a little bit more. And this could be a population worth screening. So again, in many fields, maybe that's an advantage moving forward. Sven Frank. Yeah, sure. What also struck me, Roger, when you listed the risk factors, these are the risk factors for advanced fibrosis exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I think the presumption, Sven, as I understand it, and remember, my last natural science course was high school biology, and I just learned what I learned talking to you guys and reading journals, is that patients who get to HCC who are non-serotic will have advanced fibrosis. They just won't have proceeded to cirrhosis, so it's not a surprise that you'd be looking at a lot of the same factors. It will be interesting to, to take a look at a population like that and see how the scores on that 11-point scale for different fibrosis levels correlate with HCC, whether, in fact, they're just a fundamentally two darts thrown at the same dartboard or whether there's a progression or, or a clear line through there. I think that's a good point. I've looked at an abstract that would be probably brilliant presented to be by Scott Friedman, but I wanted to introduce a little bit, since we don't have him here this evening, basic science and mechanistic studies. So I'm looking at oral session 042. It was given by a young investigator from Barcelona, the Biomedicas de Barcelona from Spain, and the abstract's entitled Novel Insights and the Contribution of Collagen Degradative Macrophages to Liver fibrosis resolution. So it's interesting. We're clinically, we're interested in fibrosis resolution. We're discussing a lot the liver histology. How is that potentially different? How can we achieve that with clinical trials? And here this group used basic science models to model fibrosis and then look at the rate of resolutions. And they looked specifically at macrophages contributing to fibrosis resolutions. So they used two models that are fairly established, not very close to NAFLD fibrosis, but still a lot of data in the 
literature. One is chronic CCL4, so a toxin that activates Kupfer and stellate cells to deposition collagen. And the second one is bile duct ligation. And they use that in a, in a transgenic mouse model with a Cathepsin D knockout um, model. And by crossing these Cathepsin D knockout animal models, uh, which is driven by uh, Luz Cray, uh, they specifically delete this only in macrophages. So within those two experimental models and this animal model that lacks um, Cathepsin D in macrophages, they then have a number of readouts for fibrosis, including hydroxyproline, serious red collagens, TGF-beta, but also some proteomics and single-cell RNA analyses. And they see that starting in some clinical samples, cirrhotic patients do have less Cathepsin D expression in liver macrophages, and they do have more fibrosis when they knock out Cathepsin D and induce fibrosis, as described by those two models. And then actually the resolution of fibrosis is slower after CCL4 withdrawal. So what you do is you inject the animals over time, then you withdraw the CCL4 and see how the fibrosis resolves. And that resolution process is slowed down if you knock out the Cathepsin D in the macrophages. And they do some additional more fancy facts and single cell uh, analyses, actually proteomic studies. They see some impaired collagen degradation in these Cathepsin D knockout models. So what pretty much happens is you have a cell population that's able to add to fibrolysis um, or fibrosis regression, and they're able to uh, locate it to the macrophages. What does that tell us clinically? I think it's an interesting uh, mechanism, uh, far removed from clinics with those two experimental models, but it tells us how broad the mechanisms are we have to consider when studying fibrosis uh, regression and uh, from therapies in patients. And you could well imagine that some therapies are more likely to support macrophage fibrolysis or macrophage-driven fibrolysis versus other drugs that maybe don't have the same effect. And then patterns of fibrosis regression uh, could be very different. Uh, and I guess those are my, my thoughts on that basic science paper. Yeah, it's interesting and it illustrates once more that the ultimate liver damage is resulting from the balance between the damage and how strong and active and efficacious the repair mechanisms are. I think it's it's very difficult in clinical practice so far to, to have treatments that really reinforce the repair mechanisms. We, we mainly act on the damage part and not so much on the repair part of the balance, but yeah, we'll see. It's, in, it's a very interesting field. Of, of research, but it's very complex. You know, if we start in the advanced population, we probably have to look at fibrolysis if we want to make a difference, and particularly if they don't lose a lot of weight or something. So I think that's interesting. And there are some biomarkers that are more closely linked to fibrosis turnover. So maybe this is something we can pick up down the line. That makes sense, Jorn. If people already have advanced disease and they're not willing to take, and they're not willing to or able to take steps that are more generally preventive, then fibrolysis seems to be the only thing that's left. A bigger challenge, and frankly, probably more expensive challenge when you get around to actually creating medicines to deal with it. But I take your point, Ian? No, I was just thinking about the balance between progression and resolution and the times it takes for scar to resolve even in injuries completely stopped like it is in hepatitis B and hepatitis C. You know, to see the time that it takes for those scars to remodel and not altogether disappear, but to have less and less impact on liver function. And I guess the more tools that we have to be able to evaluate that process and ultimately to be able to measure it in the clinic, then that will give us the opportunity to identify drugs where they may have those types of beneficial impacts and there are plans for macrophage-based cellular therapies that are coming to clinical trials which I guess will begin to, to at least give some insights into how the biology can be exploited in that case with cell therapy but potentially with other therapeutics in the future.
And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we'll be back with Stephen Harrison and Mazen Nordin to discuss more of the major drug development stories of the two sessions. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>